Radio 4 presents the Mark Steele Lecture, a series of lectures on Englishmen who changed the course of history. Episode 4, Thomas Paine. It's doubtful whether any British writer has ever had such an impact on the world as the 18th century idealist Tom Paine. So why do most British people know so little about him? Well, his first book played a vital role in America's War of Independence, which didn't really fit in with the sort of lessons that I had when I was a kid at school, where the teacher would get a big map and go, right, this was ours, 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 the French got that, I don't know how that happened, this was ours, this was ours. And this is America, we gave that bit back and we all went, Ugh. What div done that then? Like it was a mistake by a girl in a shop. Or it might be that his last book, The Age of Reason, was condemned throughout the Western world for preaching atheism. Though how do you preach atheism? Do you go around on Sunday mornings knocking on the doors of religious people? And when they answer, you go, have you heard the bad news? For 80 years after his death, almost every biography of Paine condemned him as a drunken atheist. And after his book, The Rights of Man, was published, he had to escape from Britain in fear of his life. But there was something else extraordinary about him, which is that his life was completely back to front. Until the age of 37, he didn't appear to do anything radical at all, and then over the next 20 years, he became one of the most famous revolutionaries of the century. And when he wrote The Age of Reason, one of the most controversial books of all time, he was almost 60. It'd be like if Cliff Richard had got to 40 and started doing gangster rap albums. <laughs> and then at the age of 60, he did a Christmas single called I Want to Be Sick All Over the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> Payne was born in 1737 in Thetford in Norfolk, within sight of the local gallows where there were regular hangings, and Payne's Quaker father was a corset maker, teaching young Payne the craft. And at the age of 16, Tom ran away from home to be a pirate on a ship called the Terrible, captained by a sailor called Captain Death. <laughs> Captain Death the Terrible. And you think, have the historians got this wrong and he actually ran away to a fairground? <laughs> The thing is, though, if Captain Death was real, it's no wonder he became a pirate, really, is it? <laughs> because if that was your name, you'd just be stuffed. You couldn't become an accountant, couldn't you? <laughs> Going around to cocktail parties, giving out cards that said, Uptight about your tax? Ring Captain Death and just relax. <laughs> but then Payne gave up piracy and went to Sandwich in Kent to try and start up his own corset-making business. And while Payne was in Sandwich... He met the writer Benjamin Franklin, who persuaded him to go to America. Now, America at the time was made up of 13 separate colonies whose role was to supply Britain with cheap raw materials. And the colonies weren't allowed to trade with each other. They weren't even allowed to issue their own money. In 1765, the Stamp Act had been passed, which allowed the British government to impose taxes on America. So taxes were introduced on almost everything. So in response to these new taxes, a crowd attacked the governor of Massachusetts House with axes. A mass campaign broke out and the British repealed all the new duties except for one on tea. And now everything revolved around tea. Public notices were posted by the Sons of Liberty warning local tea agents that they would be considered as wretches, unworthy to live and made the first victims of our resentment. For selling tea. <laughs> 
But in November 1773, the Sons of Liberty warned tea ships not to dock in Boston Harbour. Three vessels, though, ignored the notices, so men disguised as Mohawk Indians boarded the ships and dumped £10,000 worth of tea into the harbour. They were lucky Greenpeace weren't there, weren't they? <laughs> They'd have been paddling around in a canoe going, but have you thought how it might upset the haddocks? <laughs> After the tea dumping, which was known as the Boston Tea Party, most of the colonies made it an offence to drink tea, which must have made for some weird situations. Oh, there's nothing in the world like a good cup of tea. Did I tell you, dear, we had a terrible fright at Martha's no. party? Oh. oh, someone said they heard the pigs in the road. Oh, no. Well, we ended up flushing a whole caddy down the toilet. <laughs> Yes, I know what it's like, Elsie, oh, isn't yes. it? I mean, she was coming back from Morocco, smuggling back some bags. Bags, oh, yeah. bags, yeah. lovely. Yes. Yeah. Well, she swallowed them to get through customs. <laughs> of course, she's, you know, she's on the boat, and one of them's burst in her stomach. Oh, dear. By the time she got home, she was really refreshed. This was the state of affairs then when Payne arrived in Philadelphia in search of work. Now, at first, he spent a large part of each day in a bookshop owned by Robert Aitken. And Payne showed Aitken some unpublished manuscripts that he'd written, and Aitken offered him a job writing articles in a new magazine called the Pennsylvania Journal. And it wasn't long after he'd started writing this job that the Battle of Lexington took place when British troops fired on an American crowd assembled in front of their meeting house and killed eight of them. So that is when he wrote the pamphlet Common Sense which put the case against a monarchy for a democratic republic with annual elections and put the case for independence. George III, he said, was only king by being a descendant of William the Conqueror, who was a... French bastard, landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives. There's something for everyone there. <laughs> Even your royalist cabbie would go, mind you, he's got a point about the frogs. <laughs> But clearly he wasn't just attacking the British, he was attacking the whole system of Britain. See, up until then, the demand of the colonies had been for higher status within the empire, but no one had talked yet about independence, but Payne wrote, Independence is the only bond that can tie and keep us together. Within six months, 150,000 copies of Common Sense had been sold to a total population of three million, which at the time made it the biggest selling book in America ever. Publishers printed thousands of copies, including thousands of bootleg copies, knowing that they were guaranteed to sell them. So from then on, the official ones probably began with a message. When you're adding to your collection of revolutionary manuscripts, don't be tempted to buy a cheap, illegal pirate copy. <laughs> Check the front for the hologram of the dumped tea floating in the harbour. <laughs> Payne was so concerned at getting out as many copies as possible that he didn't even bother with copyright and didn't make any money from the book at all. He didn't even make enough to pay the printers. A few months later, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence inspired by the corset maker from Thetford. Payne continued to write these inspiring articles in a journal called The Crisis. This first one, written in December 1776, was as the Americans appeared to be defeated and was the one which began... These are the times that try men's souls. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Which was read to troops before they went into battle, whereas the literature of people who attacked Payne was of a slightly different style. For example, a writer called Cato in the Pennsylvania Evening Post. Common sense did surely come from out the crack in Pluto's bum. <laughs> 
What's that then? Is that magical realism or what? <laughs> now, which Pluto did he mean? Surely not Pluto the long-eared dog from Walt Disney. <laughs> That'd be fantastically surreal, wouldn't it, for the 18th century? And did other people do this? Your words, Lord Fox, are such nonsense that I can only imagine they were excreted by the roadrunner. <laughs> Payne was rewarded by being made Secretary for Foreign Affairs and was enormously flattered, as you would be. He went to live at Washington's country residence, and Washington accepted Payne's invitation to spend a part of an evening at my apartment and eat a crust of bread and cheese. That's cool, isn't it? <laughs> Imagine the panic most people would be in if George Washington was coming to dinner. Payne just went, there you are, crust of bread and cheese. I've got the King of France tomorrow, he's having a bowl of sugar puffs. <laughs> but there was a tension between Payne and the other leaders. See, Payne supported the abolition of slavery, whereas Washington owned slaves. And unlike the other leaders, Payne supported the rights of Native Americans, having met one of the Iroquois leaders, Chief, last night. Now, in 1780, Payne drafted a plan to tax the wealthy to help fund the army, which, unsurprisingly, the wealthy weren't too keen on. But there was something else that created this tension, because for Payne, the War of Independence was a battle for high ideals. Clearly, the independent America that Payne dreamt of was not the America that we've ended up with today. But all sorts of modern writers seem to miss this. Like Jonathan Friedland, in his book called Bringing Home the Revolution, it claims that America has been a model society because it's been based on the values of equality that Payne laid out. Which would make sense, except that, as Freeland himself admits... In 1992, the richest 20% of American households had 11 times as much income as the bottom 20%. So, you might as well say, Saudi Arabia is a marvellous country, based as it is on the radical feminist writings of Jermaine Greer. <laughs> Well, the wonderful thing about Amsterdam is how rigidly it follows the teachings of Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> Inevitably, Payne ran into all sorts of conflicts. He fell out with a member of the government called Silas Dean, who Payne said had been illegally selling weapons. Dean got away with it, probably by saying, The receipts for the Philadelphia Ritz Hotel can be easily explained by my wife and daughter. <laughs> Dean's supporters got Payne sacked as Foreign Secretary, which left him broke, and Payne ended up having to apply to the government that he'd been a part of for a loan. So there's really no justice, is there? If, instead of common sense, the best-selling book he'd written had been Not a Corset More, Not a Corset Less. <laughs> when he resigned from the government after a scandal, he'd become a millionaire and stood for Mayor of London. <laughs> And if he'd asked for the loan while he was still in the government, instead of it being to tide him over while he was broke, it would have been to buy a house in Notting Hill. <laughs> and when Mandelson resigned, there was talk of making him candidate for Mayor of London as well. I thought, God, a Mandelson versus Archer contest would provide democracy's first ever case of a nil-nil draw. <laughs> decided that the most useful thing that he could do for America would be to return to England and stir up a revolution there as well. But as he was now an international celebrity, his plan was to write pamphlets while touring England in disguise. <laughs> but Payne did return to Britain, but not to incite rebellion. Instead, he returned to build a bridge. Because throughout his life, he was fascinated by science. At one point, he tried to invent a smokeless candle. 
But now he became determined to invent the first iron bridge. An entrepreneur gave him some development money, but not enough to build a bridge over anything. So... <laughs> so he had to build it in a field in Paddington. And people used to come and look at it in big numbers. And presumably, they always used to think, well, it's very nice, but why is it in a field? <laughs> Given that if I want to get to the other side of the field, I have the option of walking across the field. <laughs> And eventually the project ran out of money and the whole thing was abandoned, uh, which is a shame because if he'd built it 200 years later, it would have won the Turner Prize. <laughs> While Payne was constructing his bridge, the French Revolution had begun. And a member of Parliament called Edmund Burke, who'd previously been seen as a reformer and was a friend of Payne, wrote a book called Reflections on the Revolution in France. And Burke condemned the revolution and its democratic aims because... Englishmen look up in awe to kings, with affection to Parliament, with duty to magistrates, with reverence to priests and with respect to nobility. The crowds in Paris Burke called the swinish multitude. So in response Paine wrote The Rights of Man. Now this was a defence of the French Revolution and a call for a similar change in Britain. The idea of hereditary rulers was, he said, as absurd as an hereditary mathematician. Would <laughs> be quite funny though, wouldn't it? <laughs> Now on the Open University, Programme 3 in the series Calculating the Equilibrium of a Hidden Quantum Tangent with Lord St. John of the Nine Times Table. Ah, yes, look at this old equation here. Yes, yes, that was my grandfather's, I believe. God knows what any of it means. Some lovely squiggles there, though, don't you think? Awfully fetching. <laughs> The book was just over a hundred pages long and revealed the advantages of making Britain a democratic republic and Paine wrote, Aristocracy has a tendency to degenerate the human species by intermarrying constantly with each other. I bet that wound them up. <laughs> it's true though, see this is how they got 250,000 people on the Countryside Alliance march. It was just a family outing. <laughs> As soon as Payne could get out a cheap edition of The Rights of Man, tens of thousands of copies were sold. So he wrote a follow-up, The Rights of Man Part 2, and it should have had a subheading, and this time he's angry. <laughs> the second part laid out in detail how Britain should distribute its wealth. The Duke of Richmond alone takes away as much for himself as would maintain 2,000 poor and aged persons. So he proposed a land tax and the abolition of inherited land and that the money saved by the abolition of royalty could pay for the first ever welfare state. He proposed pensions for everybody aged 50 and over and the first national state education system. There would be an allowance for every baby that was born and another for deaths to cover funeral expenses. And if that one had been implemented, before long you'd have had the Daily Mail going... We uncover the cheats with nothing wrong with them, deliberately dying to get their free coffee. <laughs> He proposed building a hall in central London to accommodate the 6,000 homeless. Well, the only way the government would propose anything like that now would be if they could do it through sponsorship and private finance. So you'd get the Carlsberg Special Brew Hostel for the homeless. <laughs> An advert. Tell everybody about it! <laughs> Payne's publisher warned him that this time he might be overstepping the mark. Though if he was like a modern publisher, he'd have said he didn't mind the radicalism, but the second part should be spiced up a bit. <laughs> so it would have ended up with passages like... Slowly he unzipped her dress, 
to reveal her golden constitutional breasts, glimmering like a bill of rights and trembling like a duke before an agrarian inheritance tax. <laughs> she pulled him closer, panting, talk dirty to me. Sure, he panted. Come here, you swinish multitude. <laughs> the second part of Rights of Man became the best-selling book of all time. Newspapers reported that in the Staffordshire Potteries, a copy was in every hand. That in Sheffield, every cutler owned a copy. A supporter of the government, Hannah Moore, said... The pernicious pamphlet is in every cottage, highway, mine and coal pit. Within six months, 300,000 copies had been sold. The total population was only 10 million, of which 40% couldn't read. The genius of the rights of man was that it articulated what people already felt and thought. Whereas no one now, are they? is likely to read a book written by a modern politician and go, that's it. That paragraph just sums it up. Look, I'll read what it says. Look, to build a successful third-way stakeholder economy, we have to make tough choices. It, that's what's been on the tip of my tongue for years. <laughs> Payne's book was written in an accessible style, but it was condemned, therefore, as vulgar. The gentleman author Isaac Hunt described it as... Coarse and rustic, seducing his illiterate and unskilled readers. Which is a bit similar to now, when editors of broadsheet newspapers and political magazines think that anything that is vaguely readable is therefore vulgar. So they're full of articles by these people like Hugo Young and things that are actually impossible to read which is incredibly difficult to write something. I mean, even the dictionary, you can read it. <laughs> Hardfark, abacus, abby, it is possible, but these people write things that you think, well, I should, but it's like trying to eat five cream crackers. <laughs> you think, well, I should be able to do it, but after about the second paragraph, you go, European single carbon, liberal democrat, no, I'll give up. Not surprisingly, Payne's fate was sealed. Prime Minister Pitt issued a proclamation against... Seditious and wicked writings. To which the MPs cried, Damn Payne! He was charged with seditious libel, and fearing that he was about to be executed, he fled for his life to France. He was such a celebrity that on his arrival in France, he was instantly made a member of the National Assembly, the parliament that was set up after the overthrow of King Louis XVI. But soon after Payne arrived, the National Assembly began to debate whether or not to execute the king, and Payne was firmly against this. So suddenly, having been hounded out of Britain for being too revolutionary, he now came under attack in France for not being revolutionary enough. <laughs> he must have thought the same about the world as people do when their partners start getting on their nerves. He must have just thought, what do you want? <laughs> Part of his problem may have been that, in one respect, he was a typical Brit abroad, and although he was a member of the French Parliament, he refused to learn a word of French. <laughs> so his speeches in the Assembly probably went, Monsieur Thomas Paine. What we need to do with the King? <laughs> the King! With the King! Oh, with the King, the one with the crown, the crown, dear, the one with the crown. He doesn't even know what a crown is, this is useless. The crown, the one with the jewels, the jewels! 
Payne had always insisted that it wasn't individual royals and aristocrats that were the problem, but the system of royalty and aristocracy. He imagined that once kings were deposed, they'd just be deported. But with European armies advancing on Paris and the king backing the invasion, the assembly didn't really have that luxury. Uh, and the Jacobins won the vote to execute the king, and they jailed the most prominent opponents of execution, including Payne. And while Payne was in jail, the Jacobins came under attack from all sides and responded by guillotining their opponents. Each morning, at six o'clock, a turnkey would walk around the Luxembourg prison with a list of the prisoners that were due to be executed later that day. When he came to the cell of a condemned prisoner, he'd chalk a cross on the outside of the door, and later that day, anybody inside that particular cell would be carted off to the guillotine. During his stay in prison, Payne got a fever, which almost killed him. So the prison governor allowed him to have his cell door open for fresh air. But one morning, the turnkey arrived at Payne's cell, stopped and marked a cross on the door. But because the door was open, the turnkey chalked the inside. After the turnkey went, Payne shut the door, and that night... <laughs> That night, the porters arrived to take away that day's victims, and as they got to Payne's door, they couldn't see the cross, and so they went away. Even luckier for Payne, a few days later, the Jacobins were overthrown, and the new regime took him off the condemned list before anybody noticed the mistake. But while he was in jail, he'd started work on his next book called The Age of Reason. Now, all his ideas were, he was aware, a result of analysing the world with reason rather than mysticism. And for Payne, the main enemy of reason was organised religion. He started the book by saying that all major religions are based on a revelation or a miracle, whether Moses hearing God, or the virgin birth and the resurrection, or Allah's speech to Muhammad on the mountain. But, said Payne, why was it whenever these miracles happened, there only ever seemed to be one or two people around to witness them? <laughs> a miracle or a revelation, he said, once it's passed on to somebody who wasn't there, becomes hearsay. It's like that recent story of the man in Lancashire who cut open an aubergine and found that the pattern inside said God. So people went from miles around to pray before the holy aubergine. <laughs> As if God was likely to think, so there are still some people around who don't believe in me, eh? <laughs> I know what'll prove it beyond all doubt. <laughs> I'll make the juicy bits of an aubergine spell God on a vegetable stall in Bolton. <laughs> About the Bible, Payne said, Whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and tortuous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we called it the word of a demon than the word of God. Some of this he wrote while in jail, but then when he was released, he went meticulously through the Bible to question its logic. The first five books of the Old Testament, he said, are by Moses. But then, in that case... Why do three of these books always refer to Moses in the third person? And Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3, says... The man Moses was very meek, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So Payne said, if Moses really had written that, that must make him the most arrogant man on earth. <laughs> the Age of Reason is one of the most remarkable books ever written. It had the impact of satanic verses, Lolita, the Sex Pistols and Eric Cantona's Kung Fu Kick rolled into one. <laughs> But in case this wasn't enough, he then wrote a letter to George Washington condemning his running of America. As to you, sir, the world will be puzzled as to whether you have abandoned your principles or whether you had any. Which made it fairly clear where he stood. I'm surprised he didn't put, and P.S., you still owe me a dollar for that cheese. <laughs> 
He worked with Napoleon to organise a French invasion of Britain, which tended to rule out any chance of repairing relations with the British government, really. <laughs> and as Napoleon took France towards dictatorship, Paine felt drawn back towards America, where he'd had his greatest impact. Thomas Jefferson, the new president of America by now, agreed to send a ship to bring Paine back. And Paine returned to Philadelphia, but the age of reason and his letter to Washington had turned a huge chunk of American society against him by now. For instance, the Gazette of the United States wrote, Paine is the infamous scavenger of all the filth which could be raked from the paths which have hitherto been trodden by all the revilers of Christianity. Now that's a bad review worth having. <laughs> Back in Philadelphia, Payne was attacked by mobs throwing stones. He offered to work for the government, but eventually they stopped even replying to his letters. And then, during an election, as Payne was handing in his ballot paper, he was told he wasn't even allowed to vote, as he wasn't an American. Almost penniless, Payne moved to a farm where a friend called William Carver visited him and said later, His shirt was in tatters, and he gave off the most disagreeable smell possible, like that of our poor beggars in England. His toenails were like bird claws. So Carver took him to stay with him at home. But even Mrs Carver couldn't stand pain and called him... A stinking atheist old troublemaker. <laughs> Payne then suffered a stroke and took to drinking a pint of rum a day to quell the pain. If anyone from the equivalent of social services had popped round, they'd probably end up going, Yes, dear, of course you wrote the three best-selling books of all time, dear. <laughs> His hallucinations are getting worse this morning. He told me he'd built a bridge in the middle of a field in Paddington. <laughs> Various priests encouraged him to recant. They all failed, and on the 8th of June, 1809, Payne died unrepentant. In Britain, the reform movement after that, the Luddites, the Chartists, early trade unions, all referred to the books of Payne for inspiration. A book about the history of Merthyr Tydfil, written in the 1860s, says, A few who thought highly of the rights of man and the age of reason assembled in secret places on the mountains, and taking the works from under a concealed boulder, read them with great unction. I wonder if anyone has ever read anything by a new Labour politician with any unction. <laughs> but some of them like to pretend that there's still a bit of the sparky rebel in them. So they say their heroes are people like Payne and the suffragettes and Martin Luther King, because deep down they know that no one will ever, ever say you know, the man who really inspires me is Jack Straw. <laughs> and besides, far from being the most popular Prime Minister of the century, hardly anybody likes Tony Blair. He's the most unpopular, most popular person there's ever been. <laughs> irritating idiot at a party that nobody kicks out because everybody thinks he's someone else's friend. <laughs> so we can't all be Tom Paine, but we can all be great men and women that change the course of history by being little Tom Paines, plucking up the courage to be the first in the room that says that's not right and we shouldn't stand for it, and then finding that lots of others will say they've just said exactly what I'm thinking. I started this series by saying that Oliver Cromwell's greatest achievement was to get the English to be enthusiastic about the Civil War because, in general, you can go up to an Englishman and say, I would like to take away your wife in exchange for a mule, and they're likely to go, oh, you better go, dear, we don't want to make a fuss. <laughs> if Tom Paine and the other people featured in this series have anything to say to us down the ages, it is simply, make a fuss.
The Mark Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Melanie Hudson and Martin Heider. The producer was Phil Clark. Thank <laughs> you.